Welcome, everyone, to the first of a series of New Age Alpha podcasts, where we discuss investments, the market, and the risk created by human behavior that impacts all of that. This is our inaugural podcast, and I hope that we can set the stage for many future discussions. And I'm Andy Kern, head of research at New Age Alpha, and I'm joined by Julian Kosky, who's our chief investment officer as well as co-founder of the firm. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're looking forward to talking about uh, what I believe will be an exciting new topic in the world of investing. I agree. Um, you know, Julian and I have known each other for um, 13 years. I met him when we were introduced um, in 2007, and he told me about an investment philosophy that has really resonated with me ever since. And that's what we will talk about today. Uh, you know, my background was in academics, and I had always liked rules-based and theoretically sound approaches to investing. And Julian, what you told me back then, um, really, I really connected with because it was logical and it was innovative. And I must say my faith in the approach has not wavered uh, ever since. I think when I met you, you were teaching a, a course about uh, Warren Buffett's um, investing uh, process, right? That's right. I taught that class for many years at the university level. And um, I, I think that the philosophy that we discussed did a great job of um, building on those principles that are so hard to replicate uh, on, an, on an active basis, um, but it gave a really rules-based and structured approach to, to implementing that type of philosophy. And that's what I liked about it. But, you know, Julian, I do think there's a bigger issue even than our investment methodology, and, and that's really our approach to asset management itself and, and how we are different. So do you want to maybe start off by addressing the, the business of New Age Alpha and, and what it is that we are hoping to accomplish in this series of podcasts? Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, you know, I've been in the business, in this particular business now, pretty much my whole life. This is a body of work that I've been focused on for at least the past 30 years. And um, uh, in that time, um, I've come to realize that certainly within the asset management business is that there's a real opportunity to completely reimagine the kind of products and services we provide our clients. It's not just about changing how we think about risk, which is, of course, our primary objective, but it's also about the kind of services we provide to, to our clients, right? There, there are just millions of products out there, millions of products, lots of track rec uh, good track records. You know, it's almost if you think about it today, track records are almost a commodity, right? Because if you don't have a track record, you're not going to be in business, right? If you can't demonstrate good performance. But what beyond that are we doing for our clients? How are we helping them to build their businesses? What are the tools and value-added services we can provide? And, you know, what kind of client service are we can pro uh, going to provide our clients? Um all these things really have come to a head with us here at New Age Alpha. So it's not just about reimagining, reimagining just the investment side of the business, but the business in totem, right? Uh, including our sales and distribution, how we think about selling our products to our clients. It's, it, as I said, it's a complete reimagining of the asset management business. And as we get into the different podcasts, I'll start to explain how we think about this from a completely different perspective. One of the things I have noticed, Julian, is the tremendous um, stubbornness of those that work in our industry um, and their the refusal to embrace new ideas and new approaches. I mean, it does seem odd, doesn't it, that 
innovation is welcomed in other lines of work and in other industries. But for some reason, when it comes to investing and in asset management, it's the same old tired approaches and, and business models. And it's it's a cultural problem, right? You just look at where uh, the people in our industry come from, the kinds of firms they work for, the schools they attend, right? We're just impounding this kind of um, cultural behavior uh, into our investment processes. And, and we're not getting anything different, right? We're still accepting uh, that the traditional risk measures, the traditional ideas about risk management. You know, we, we think there's a, an epidemic failure within the asset management business. And their understanding of risk, which leads portfolio managers to mismanage their portfolios and investors to lose money. Essentially, there's an imperfect understanding of where alpha comes from. Portfolio managers think in terms of picking winners when their goal should be to avoid losers. And so now I'm getting into the area of describing how different our investment process is. Let me clarify for you. If I was to draw a straight line, and that straight line was the S&P 500, and I put winners at one end and losers at the other, and I ask an audience of portfolio managers, how would you design a portfolio to beat this S&P 500? 99% of them are going to say pick the winners. But in order to pick the winner, you have to have some knowledge of the future. We all know that the future, by definition, is not known. And the more we forecast this unknown future, all we're doing is we're increasing the likelihood of being wrong and investing in a loser. By the way, another word for forecasting the future, gambling, right? We at uh, New Age Alpha have completely redesigned the investment process around avoiding the losers. And that's not just words. We've actually developed a methodology and we've drawn on um, the uh, certain aspects of other industries, which I'll explain in a few minutes, to do this, right? We've departed completely from traditional portfolio management techniques in doing this. You know, all of this kind of begs the question, what is a loser? And if if we are to avoid the losers, we must have a, a fairly clear understanding of what a loser is. I, I agree. I mean, there are so many definitions out there about loss, right? Well, the first thing we need to we need to think about is what is loss? Well, to me, it's losing money, right? Period end of the story. It's it's really nothing more than that. And we have to ask ourselves, when do we lose money? You know, do we lose money when a stock has a higher dispersion of returns, right? No, we don't, right? Do we lose money when a stock is volatile? No, not necessarily. It's just volatile, right? Do we lose money when a stock has a lower sharp ratio? No. Do we lose money because it's a value stock or a growth stock? No. These are not definitions of why we lose money. You will lose money if a company cannot deliver the growth implied by their stock price, right? Think about that for a moment, right? Stock prices mean something, right? They mean cash flows, which means earnings, which means revenues, right? These things are all linked. So prices mean things, right? If you think about this, a good company bought at the wrong price is going to be a bad investment. A bad company bought at the right price will be a good investment. So if you think for a moment, both in my statement and the statement I just made, price discovery is everything. And it's human behavior and its impact on prices that will impact a company's ability to deliver the growth implied by their stock price. Of course, the question that comes from that question would be, um, how do we know if a company will fail to deliver that growth? 
that cr that growth that's implied by the stock price, the critical um, determination of whether the stock is a winner or a loser. We have to have a method that's reliable, that's understandable uh, as to how to answer that question. And I think that's really where the biggest contribution of our methodology becomes apparent. Um, you know, Julian, the, the efficient market hypothesis says that all information is priced. But really, when you stop to think about it, um, there's, there's two types of information. There's the information that is known, that everyone is, understands and agrees on and agrees how it should impact the price of the stock. And then there's the information that's not so clear, the information that's vague or ambiguous. And this is the information that, you know, while we know it's relevant, we, while we know it's important to the value of the stock, it's very unclear how to quantify that. And I think that as a result is when human behavior begins to creep into prices. You know, Andy, it's, 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 it's a, it's a very wide ranging topic and it has far reaching consequences. This idea of, um, you know, humans interpreting vague and ambiguous information in a systematically incorrect way. I think that this is not just a problem that uh, underlies investments, but if you look at COVID today and you just look at some of the problems around the world, we, we're very good at interpreting factual type information, right? But we are absolutely horrible at understanding or being able to interpret properly this vague and ambiguous information. We all think we can do it, but the fact of the matter is we cannot, right? And probably because it's by its very nature, it's vague and ambiguous. But unfortunately, so much vague and ambiguous information is making its way into our different decisions. And primary uh, decisions, like when it comes to investing, are really being impacted by this. And, you know, with the advent of the internet and information, there's just, there's more and more vague and ambiguous, vague and ambiguous information than I would argue than there is actually factual information. You know, when you think about factual information, it's pretty limited, but yet we are faced with having to use and interpret this information. And I think that's where the biggest mistake is made, uh, not only when it comes to our investing uh, and how we invest, but also to our health. I mean, you're watching what's going on, you know, the, the different parties and their beliefs in, you know, uh, information and, 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 and using that information. And really that information has no clear interpretation. And that's why people become, uh, biased or behave in, in systematically incorrect ways because they don't know how to interpret it and really no one else in, in investing i always like to point to the example of uh steve jobs death in 2011. you know the, when this occurred um clearly this was relevant information to the value of apple but to what extent you know there was a tremendous um disagreement among investors some some thought that the uh that the stock should become worth significantly less some thought that it should be worth slightly less. Some thought that it, be sh it should be worth more. Um, but there was no clear answer to that question. And it was only in time that the, that the answer really became unambiguous. So as a result, you know, some of those investors who panicked, who were overly pessimistic, they may have driven the stock price too low because they were interpreting information that was vague and ambiguous. And guess what? Today, Apple's a $2 trillion company. So someone was wrong somewhere along the line. Someone was, but along the way, we, we get these bumps and those bumps are caused by people interpreting information in a biased way. Yeah. And so, you know, and Andy, what that, what, what this all means is, right, is, 
you know, a lot of portfolio managers will say, well, well, that's exactly the problem with the efficient market hypothesis, right? And, and, you know, we would concur with that. The problem is how we go about mitigating this risk that comes from humans interpreting this vague and ambiguous information. I would argue that portfolio managers are part of the problem. I would argue that portfolio managers systematically incorrect, uh, interpret a vague and ambiguous information in an incorrect way. The very nature of assumptions that they would need to make to their underlying risk models proves that point, right? Um, when you think about uh, com uh, industries that are successful at interpreting uh, or, or mitigating risk from vague and ambiguous information, there's really, really only one industry that I know of that is hugely successful at doing that, and that is the insurance industry, right? And, you know, we have a saying, uh, manage risk like an actuary, not like a portfolio manager. And, and why do I say that, right? If you think about it, imagine for a moment if an insurance company, when they gave you a questionnaire for, say, life insurance or health insurance, they asked questions like, are you going to quit smoking? Are you going to go to the gym? Right? You could never underwrite risk on these vague questions, right? It would be almost impossible to do that. The only way they can underwrite risk is underwriting that risk based on what's known, right? They're going to do a health exam. They're going to call your doctor. They're going to get the factual records. And based on that, they're going to assign a probability of living or dying, right? But it's all based on math. And, and let, let me remind everybody, right? It's the insurance companies that own the buildings that banks are in, right? So they are very successful at doing this. When we think about stocks, it's the same thing, right? We spoke earlier about how much vague and ambiguous information there is out there. But we really have to focus on underwriting this risk in stocks from, from really what we call the known information. There's almost very little of that. In fact, there's only two things that we absolutely know about a stock at any point in time. And that is the company's current stock price, right? And the financial statements, right? The balance sheets and the income statements, right? Um, and what we want to know is we want to use these two pieces of information to essentially calculate what is the implied revenue growth rate needed to support that, that company's stock price, right? You can use math to do that. Let me, let me give you an example, right? If we look at Tesla from a year ago, Around July 15th, 2019, Tesla was trading at $253.50, right? Now, taking their financial statements and the stock price, we could calculate that Tesla needed $6.1 billion in revenue to support the stock price, which further meant that they needed to sell 95,000 new cars per quarter to justify the price, right? So from two pieces of information, we've now got what does that stock price imply on be, uh, as it relates to Tesla? Now, if we were to open up the financial statements for Tesla for the prior 16 quarters and observe how many times Tesla delivered that implied revenue growth rate, you would have seen that Tesla delivered this nearly 80% of the time in the prior 16 quarters. In fact, there was only a 20% chance that Tesla was going to fail to deliver this, this revenue growth rate. And, you know, let, let's, let's look at, let's put some context around this, right? Let's look at the vague and ambiguous information that existed at this time. You know, right then, around this July timeframe, there were 169 headlines about Tesla out there. 
130 of them were negative. You had people like investors like Jim Chanos and David Einhorn all saying this company is going to go out of business, right? This is the biggest short. It's the biggest fraud out there, right? But let's take for a moment that that this was really just simply some, you know, it's vague and it's the biggest information. It's just someone's opinion. But what happened? This information made its way into Tesla stock price and underpriced the stock. And I think we can all agree that's exactly what happened, right? There's just so much of this vague and ambiguous information, both good and bad. In this particular case, right, this uh, information actually underpriced the stock. One would argue that was a good opportunity for people who were looking for undervalued stocks. Um, it could have been the reverse true, right? Um, uh, vague and ambiguous information could also push the price of the stock up, which would make it much harder for the company to deliver that implied revenue growth rate, right? We, at New Age Alpha, what we've done is we've developed a methodology that for thousands of stocks around the world, we calculate the human factor, right? It's the probability that the company will not deliver the growth implied by the stock price. And we don't say will, we say will not, because it's the risk coming from this humans interpreting this vague and ambiguous information. The lower the probability, the better. In other words, the lower our human factor, the more likely the company will deliver the growth. The higher the human factor, the more likely the company will not deliver the growth. You know, that's it's, it's really... Um... Uh, it's all about human behavior, but I think it's important to note that we are not a behavioral asset manager. You know, behavioral finance is the science uh, whereby managers try to arbitrage the misbehavior of others, whereas we are about avoiding the behavior completely. Yeah, that's that's some of you know that's one of the questions we always get. Well, are you you know in the behavioral finance world? And absolutely not, right? I mean, behavioral finance is a whole different subject. What we're saying is that. There's an element of risk out there in the market that's not being accounted for by traditional risk measures. Um, if you think about the pharma French factors uh, and you know the, the whole business around factors, a lot has been written about how these factors essentially account for a, a lot of those the, those risks. But we understand those risks, and you know one um, uh, gets compensated for taking those risks. But there's another risk out there that nobody has focused on, and I think our body of work um, truly highlights that. Right? We know that. Uh, idiosyncratic risk at the at the at the firm level exists, and we know that the uh, the process by which one avoids that idiosyncratic risk is to diversify your portfolio. Right, we know that. Right, but that's firm specific risk. That is risk coming from uh, the possibility of a factory fire or a CEO passing away, something like that. Right, and that's why we diversify that risk. This risk. Um, is actually an idiosyncratic risk that occurs at the stock price level, right? This is coming from human behavior um, that impacts stock prices. And, it, and, and in particular, the, the effects it has in terms of overpricing stocks. We saw in the case of Tesla that, you know, when things are underpriced, a lot of capital will come into the market to arbitrage that, that risk away, right? Um, the, you know, it happens very, very quickly. But when it comes to overpricing, overpricing is a much more persistent, sticky problem in investors' portfolios. In fact, it's the problem as to why you erode your returns, because in order for something to not be 
overpriced. Uh, think about it. We need short participants in the market, right? And with all the complexities of shorting, both its capital requirements and its riskiness, it's more likely that a stock remain overpriced. What the H factor does, uh, the human factor, I should say, does is identifies uh, when a stock is overpriced and we avoid it. We remove it from the portfolio. And in fact, I think the risk that we're talking about uh, is is actually more important than those metrics of risk that everyone else relies on. Uh, you know, things like volatility and beta simply are not important when you think of risk in terms of avoiding losers. I mean, after all, volatility can make a stock go up or down, you know, and, and it's, I kind of like it when the stock goes up. It's it's when the stock goes down that bothers me. And to me, that's what risk is. And that's what we're trying to avoid. It's exactly, you know, those risk measures are purely a proxy for what we're talking about, right? When I say a proxy, what do I mean by that? Well, think about that, right? We're saying that risk is a company that cannot deliver the growth implied by its stock price. Well, guess what? If there's a lot of uncertainty around a company's ability to deliver that growth rate, you're going to have a higher beta or lots of volatility. But it doesn't actually measure the risk of the loss. It measures the uncertainty. And there's a huge difference between those two things. We're very focused on man on measuring the risk of loss, right? And avoiding that risk of loss. And I, I really think that's uh, what we've done that is a, a really big breakthrough in, the, in, in thinking about risk is really understanding the effects that human behavior has on stock prices. This is a, I would say this is the mother of all risks. And this is the one risk that if we don't avoid, I think you're going to witness uh, uh, continue to witness underperformance in portfolios. A question we often get is, is the human factor simply another factor um, by a different name? Many investors rely on, quote, factors such as value or momentum or volatility. And the answer to the question is unequivocally no. We are not one of those other factors. In fact, we have very low correlations to those other factors. And the reason for that is because human factor is picking up on something unique. So in our next podcast, we will discuss that issue and how human factor is unique. Absolutely. Uh, Andy, I think that's going to be a great podcast. You know, um, as I said at the beginning of this uh, podcast, there's a huge body of work that both you and I have created. Um, and, you know, it's going to be exciting to show people that really this is a completely new risk. So until next week, um, I look forward to speaking again with you, Andy. But until then, uh, thank you very much, everybody. And speak soon. Thank you.